Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. They may speak of a strict religious upbringing and make reference to the Bible. In the late 1960s in Glasgow, three women were murdered just hours after spending the night dancing at the Barrowland Ballroom. Oh, it was so sad. Those poor women, they didn't do anything wrong. Police linked these killings and the investigation became Scotland's biggest ever manhunt. If you think you know this man, contact your nearest police station immediately. 100 detectives, 5,000 suspects, 50,000 statements. Newspapers gave the killer a name. Bible John. Everybody loves the thought of a serial killer. I mean, people just become fascinated by it. But after the third murder, the killer never struck again, as far as we know. I'm Audrey Gillen. I've been a journalist for more than 30 years, but I've known the Bible John story all my life. I grew up in Glasgow, a city haunted by this killer, where children were warned, Bible John will get you. The police didn't get him. But then in 1996, more than 25 years after the last killing, there was a breakthrough in the case. A tent was erected over the family grave in Stonehouse Cemetery in Lanarkshire. Detectives had a prime suspect, and I was the reporter who broke the story. It was a sensational coup, that story. I interviewed the key witness and uncovered police notes on each of the killings. I've held on to those documents ever since. And now in this podcast, I'm revealing them for the very first time. I wonder whether they ever described him as extremely fond of female company. They contain incredible detail on each of the murders, but they also reveal the attitudes of the detectives who wrote them, prejudices that may have blinded them in their investigations. Those Glaswegian women were routinely described as promiscuous, as heavy drinking. They almost shouldn't have been in a dance hall. It's time that that prejudice was exposed. I want to tell the stories of Patricia, Jemima and Helen properly. Pat was a really nice lady, you know, just a normal girl. And discover what happened to the families they left behind. It must have been when I was a teenager that I got told that when my mum was young, her mum was murdered. I remember being stunned. All I knew was that these ladies got killed and somehow someone related to me was one of them. I also want to return to this investigation that I last worked on 25 years ago and look at something I found in one of my old notebooks. They're dealing with a potential exhumation of a fabled Glasgow serial killer, but he's telling you that another story's a cracker. I don't know what it means, a parallel story that I missed at the time. A story which has never come to light.
BBC Scotland, a new podcast, Bible John, Creation of a Serial Killer. Subscribe now on BBC Sounds. Hey, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Crime Analyst and the Intelligence Cell. Now this week, I'm super excited to be joined by award-winning writer and reporter Audrey Gillen. Audrey reinvestigated three horrific murders, Patricia Docker, Jemima MacDonald and Helen Puttock. The police linked these three murders and the investigation became Scotland's biggest manhunt. Listen to Audrey's 10-part series, Bible John, Creation of a Serial Killer, before you listen to my interview with Audrey, and I guarantee you won't regret it. It's time incredibly well spent. You see, for the first time, you'll hear about the actual victims, Patricia, Jemima and Helen, and you'll hear from their families and some of the investigators too. Now, for disclosure, I know the case, but I can tell you this is the first time that there's been an actual focus on the victims, who they were, how they lived the fact that they were mothers and working mothers. And when you listen, you'll understand why the truth of who they were is so important, particularly in my work, and also how misogyny can colour a case and allow a perpetrator to be greenlit and enabled, and also how misogyny is motive for murder. I get into all of this with Audrey. Just a heads up that this was recorded before Baroness Louise Casey published her independent review into the standards of behaviour and culture of the Metropolitan Police Service. Now, this report and its findings are relevant to policing all across the world, and I can tell you that the findings have really rocked national policing in the UK. So I highly recommend that you listen to my crime analyst episode number 123, The Murder of Sarah Everard, a deep dive into the culture of the Metropolitan Police Service as well. And I also want to flag that we should also consider the media's role in naming serial killers and how the media and crime writers frame women. Okay, so I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, but you can probably tell that I'm really excited for you to hear this interview. And just to say, as always, listener discretion is advised. We do get into the details and the context the granular details about the cases. And so please take great care when you're listening to this. Okay, with that having been said, let's dive into this fascinating interview with the brilliant Audrey Gillen. Well, hey, lovely listeners. Welcome back to Crime Analyst and the Intelligence Cell. And with me today, I've got a very special guest who I've been wanting to speak with for a very long time. Please introduce yourself, Audrey. Hi, so my name is Audrey Gillen. I'm a journalist and broadcaster, and Laura wishes to speak to me more specifically because I recently made a podcast for the BBC, which is called Bible John, Creation of a Serial Killer. And I have to say, Audrey, it's just been an incredible podcast. I'll say that first and foremost, and to my listeners, please do go and listen to it. It really is just... It's not just an incredible production, it's the fact that you have been so honest and authentic and you've given back the voices to the victim and to their families. And I really thank you for that. And I'll explain a little bit more why it's so important to me, but perhaps you can explain why it's important to you, first of all. Well, I grew up in Glasgow 
and in the late 1960s, three women were murdered after dancing in a venue called the Barrowland Ballroom. They had gone there for a fun night out and before they managed to get home after the night out, something happened. They met a man and they were found the following morning and they were strangled. The similarities in the three cases led them to be linked, particularly since the women had been dancing in this famous Barrowland Ballroom. But the women also had their periods. They were found quite close to their homes. They were strangled. There were other reported similarities, which when I investigated the case so many years later, turned out not to be true. It was across more than 18 months, but it was Scotland's biggest unsolved murder and biggest manhunt. And one bright spark reporter coined the name Bible John. And as you know, very well. People like giving killers names. The last victim had gone home in a taxi with a man and the man was supposed to have been quoting from the Bible. The reason that we know this is that her sister is in the taxi with her. So she was the key surviving witness and she said he quoted from the Bible. This in a sense was blown out of proportion because everybody believes that all the man did was quote the Bible but it was one or two lines but one reporter was on the phone to his news desk very clever obviously because the man's name was supposed to be John and he said I know we'll call him Bible John and so began the creation of this Bible John character. Yes and it sort of worked both ways didn't it it worked for the police to have this moniker and it meant that it kept it in the news headlines and it worked for the journalist. And these monikers are so dangerous. And I'll say a bit more about that. I've worked so many cases where the moniker becomes the obstruction and the distraction. And in this case, it's so true because most people would not even be able to name the victims Right. I mean, even when I knew about the case and with we talk about Peter Tobin as a separate issue, but people wouldn't even be able to name the victims of this so-called serial killer. And you do that so well in terms of really giving them a voice. And for the first time, we truly hear about who they were. And they were actually amazing women who, as you said, just in your opening, what was their crime? Well, they went out dancing. They were mothers and they had, you know, the opportunity to go out dancing, do the thing that they loved. And for that, they were judged and they were blamed in their own brutal murders. They were, and they were only very young women. They were either married or in relationships that had foundered. They were aged between 25 and 31 in this day and age. People don't even have children necessarily at that age. They are still going out dancing and having fun, which those women were entitled to do. You know, they were having marriage problems, living at home with their parents or bringing up kids in small confined flats. And they'd gone out to let their hair down, put some lipstick on, get their best dresses on and go out and have a nice time. Now, dancing in Glasgow at that time was huge. It is what people did. It, w it was the social life, you know, that people did that more than anything else. And that's all these women were doing. But for me, Laura, it was also something that I failed to do when I was a young journalist because I worked on a story 
27 odd years ago, actually, which was in 1996, I discovered that police had reopened the investigation, not into the three murders, but into the last murder, that of Helen Puttock, who is the woman that I told you was in the taxi. And that was because police in Scotland had decided to try and look at cold cases because DNA technology was in its infancy. And they said if there's any sort of possible DNA samples available in any cold cases, then can you send them forward? And there was a pair of tights that had been held that belonged to Helen Puttock. And after some time, semen traces were found on the waistband of those tights. So therefore, police reopened the inquiry into Helen's murder. Now, I had been told about this as a tip off for a story, but what I then discovered was that police had a suspect in mind who had gone in the taxi with Helen and potentially was her murderer and that they were seeking to exhume the body of a man who had been buried after claiming his own life in 1980 to exhume his body at dawn and then test his DNA against the DNA sample that was found on the tights. Now, I was a very young journalist and this was an amazing story for me. It was massive. It was sort of, unfortunately, had the headline Police About to Solve Bible John Mystery, which ultimately that was a bit of an unfortunate headline. But this man, I didn't have his name at the time. I was working on my own. I was working really hard and um, I was working to deadline and I didn't get his name. But what I did do was focus on him as the killer. Of course, that is the story, really. You know, police have found the killer. But the women were just this sidebar. A sidebar is just the story that's down the side of the paper. And so it was on the front and it was two big broadsheet pages and the women were just a sidebar down the side. And I didn't really think about it that much. But over the years, I realised what I'd done. But I had also kept these original police notes and I'd carried them around with me wherever I went and took them to... London. Now I'm talking to you from a very small island in Portugal where I ended up spending the second lockdown and I had brought them here with me, which is kind of, well, lucky in a sense. And that's when I sat down and looked at them and was completely furious. They were so pejorative, misogynistic. They were so horrible about the women. And that then made me annoyed at myself for never realising this at the time and just reading them and kind of not doing very much about them and not being outraged. And so I just thought, okay, now is now is the time to tell this story properly. But what I really wanted to do was understand and tell the story of the women and take them away from that two-dimensional black and white picture that, you know, people would familiar with the Bible John story would recognise and try and bring colour to their lives and also try to find some of their families and understand what happened in the wake of this and what continues to happen as this story appears and appears and appears. So that's what I tried to do. I want to tell you about my sponsor, Factor. Factor makes healthy eating easy and health and fitness starts with good food. Every fresh, never frozen meal is chef crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Also, there are more than 60 add ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. So, what are you waiting for? 
Get started today and get after your goals. Fuel up fast with Factors, restaurant-quality meals that are ready to heat and eat whenever you are. I've had the chicken parmesan and the turkey chili and zucchini, and they're delicious and I highly recommend them. Factor is flexible for your schedule. You can get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries anytime. Now, they've done the maths and Factor is less expensive than takeout and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash crimeanalyst50 and use code crimeanalyst50 to get 50% off. That's code crimeanalyst50 at factormeals, F-A-C-T-O-R, factormeals.com slash crimeanalyst50 to get 50% off. Let's talk makeup for a moment. What's your daily makeup routine? Are you an out of the door with a messy bun, a mascara vibe? Or are you coiffed to the max? Or maybe you're somewhere in between like me. Thrive Cosmetics beauty products are certified 100% vegan and cruelty free. Made with clean skin loving ingredients, high performance and trademark formulas and uncompromising standards. Thrive Cosmetics bigger than beauty mission is amazing. For every product purchase, Thrive Cosmetics donates products and funds to help communities thrive. I love that Thrive Cosmetics supports domestic violence victims, breast cancer survivors, and women who are emerging from homelessness. It's a beauty brand and a philosophy that goes beyond skin deep by empowering women. Did you know the first product they launched were false eyelashes, which was motivated by the fact that cancer patients lose their eyelashes? How amazing is that? I love their new sheer strength lip plumping peptide gloss. It gives you a visibly fuller looking, luscious lips without fillers or uncomfortable stinging sensations. It's also ultra hydrating and there are 10 shades to choose from which enhance your natural lips, six shines and four shimmers. Support and empower women and treat yourself or a loved one. Thrive Cosmetics is a luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com slash crimeanalyst. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com slash crimeanalyst for 20% off your first order. Well, I'm so glad that you did that. I'm so glad that you took those files with you and that you reviewed the case again with a new lens. And I think it happens so often, doesn't it? It's just the culture, the misogyny with which we all swim in. We don't really think or question, particularly when we're junior in our career. I mean, I was just starting out at New Scotland Yard at at the time. You know, my unit, the sexual offences section, was set up in the wake of a man called Peter Sutcliffe. And all the learning from that inquiry was why my unit came into being. But the legacy of that case was so distorted about what happened and who the women were. In fact, again, no one could really name who the women were. And these awful black and white pictures of some of them made them look like they were the criminal. And the legacy for their families, you know, as you talk about that, keep being recycled over and over again. But the killer and their moniker and their face being the the thing that centred And that becomes the legacy. And what I really loved about what you did as well was the children, the children who are the legacy, 
who live with this, who oftentimes we don't hear their voices. You know, you talk extensively about Patricia Docker, but also Jemima McDonnell and Helen. But the episode that really just made me cry was Alex Docker. My goodness, it was so powerful just him trying to put together his fragmented memories of his mother and just the words that he used and the things that he said. And I will I will quote him but as we carry on our conversation, but it was just so powerful because people just don't think about the legacy of what it means for children. And also they don't think about the legacy of, of male violence and this intergenerational trauma that's handed down that just repeats over and over and over again. And that's why I think it, it was so important that you stripped the fact and the fiction. We very clearly could hear who the women were, and actually they were incredible women. They were working mothers doing their best to juggle childcare without the support at times and just trying to live their lives. And they were concerned about safety. They weren't drinkers. All the things that were written in the police reports which you went on to challenge, their families have had to live with as if they were unworthy victims in some way, the way that they were painted and characterised. So, you know, I really do want to thank you for being so honest and authentic in your own narrative and your own search for truth in this case and recentering the victims so that they're not footnotes and that we do hear about who they were as women. The thing that they said about the women also was about, you know, they were promiscuous. They were judged for going and potentially going to the battleland and perhaps having a liaison. So many people went to dance halls in Glasgow for liaisons, but they weren't judged for that. But these women were because they ended up dead. The language that they used, you know, of Patricia, they said um, she was an only child and rather spoiled. What relevance is that in terms of trying to fill... I understand that police need to fill out a background of someone who has been murdered, but that's a judgment. You know, rather spoiled. With, um, and, I mean, I'm being defensive because I am an only child and that rather spoiled has been said so many times about only children. It's utterly ridiculous. But you could look at these police notes with your expertise, Laura, and just pick them apart and go, this is not relevant, this is not... Re OK, that's relevant, but, like, it's full of judgment and they're just, you know, they were just horrendous. And that misogyny and judgment has no place in any police investigation and I won't give them a pass because of the culture at that time. And I didn't when I re-examined what happened in the north of England with Peter Sutcliffe killing so many women. You don't get a pass when you're almost saying, well, they deserve to die. They were promiscuous. Because that's really what they're saying, that they're promiscuous, where they drank, they liked the company of men. Well, most women do like the company of men. What is a problem is the layered judgment and making them out to be unworthy victims. And why do these men get the pass or the chance to do that without question? And as you said, why is that even relevant? They weren't high-risk victims, right? They were just going out dancing. But the location they went to, perhaps if the police had considered that, that it's a target-rich environment, i.e. if you have someone who wants to harm women, where might they find preferential victim? Well, at a location like that, right? So if you flip it on its head. And also the senior investigating officer, years later, when he was re-interviewed by the police officers reinvestigating Helen's murder in 1995 and 96 said um, 
because there was failures in, in the investigation, the original investigation and allegations of a cover-up and all of that. But these police officers spoke to Joe Beattie in his hospital bed and he said of his team, maybe their hearts weren't in it because of what she was. So he's actually saying, well, my boys maybe didn't do a very good job because, you know, she was a bit of a slapper. Which just makes me so angry. I mean, it happens so often. And the, these kind of who's worthy and who's not as a victim, the laden judgment. And it's not just within the police, it's also the media. Which cases are picked up? Which are the ones that are spotlighted? There were a lot of conversations about that with Gabby Petito, even now with Nicola Bully, a mother who was missing for some time. There were lots of people saying, well, why does this one missing person case get the media attention versus the many others? So again, the judgment about who's worthy and who's not, but it doesn't help when it begins with the police, when they're the ones who are meant to be investigating with an open mind. The focus must be on who did this, not on, well, she did X or she did Y. And that victim blaming is so pervasive in our culture where it's so much easier to focus on the victim of what they did, what they wore, what they said, how they conducted their lives, rather than actually focus on the investigation and who did it. So I have no doubt that that played in of characterising it in that way. Well, our hearts weren't really in the investigation because she wasn't worthy. Where actually what you uncovered were the women, and it really shouldn't matter either way, but these women were mothers who worked bloody hard. Patricia was an auxiliary nurse. The only thing that they did was go out to let off a bit of steam, which we all do, and go to a place where, unfortunately, it's most likely that there they met somebody who made them feel comfortable and they may well have gone off with them. And we know that they didn't make it home. In that time between going out to the Barrowlands, the, the geography is what they share in common. And the victimology, there are some things in common too. And the victimology of the victims all being of similar ages, of being of similar circumstances, they had separated from their partners. They had children. They were going out to have fun. They were going out to dance. They didn't actually drink a lot as they were characterised as, as doing. And they were concerned about their safety, but they were well-dressed. They were well-turned out and they did nothing wrong apart from go out to have a good time. That was it. And the fact that they all had their period which is always a thing that's massively highlighted in the case. Someone did point, it was actually the BBC lawyer who was brilliant. And she said to me, Audrey, one in four women in the Barrowland that night would have had their period. You know, he's not necessarily going around going, who, who, you know, if it was, you know, the way that it's the debate is because, I mean, I ultimately look at it and think, was this a serial killer? No, I'm not entirely sure. Was he preying on women looking for women that had their period? Which is the way that the story is told. But as you say, that there are these factors that society life at that time means that people would be together in that dance hall and things happen to them. It may not have been this one Bible quoting serial killer that went home with the with these women and strangled them. Another thing that's said about the cases is that they were all raped. They weren't all raped. You'll remember that I kind of emphasised quite a bit in it that they always spell Jemima McDonald's name wrong and get her age wrong. They never couldn't. And, and that continues to this day. 
It must be actually the picture caption. This is unfortunate picture of Jemima and the picture caption on it must just be spelt wrong with her age wrong and it continues and continues and continues. I'm still in contact with Alex Docker, whose episode you loved so much. And I don't know if you know that that's him playing the guitar in tribute to his mother as well as, as, well as the words. It's really an utterly remarkable episode and it's all his. There is also, though, a small and precious collection of photographs of my mother as a baby, as a small child, as a teenager, and as a happy young woman on her wedding day. Four photographs in all. In some, a sense of mischief and humour in her eyes. The last is known to everyone familiar with the terrible events that took place in the dark alleys of 1960s Glasgow. This beautiful young woman, my mother, a stranger to me really, with bright green eyes and auburn hair full of life and laughter. Her name is remembered by many millions, only by the manner of her death. Her wedding photograph is stamped on history and in the lurid headlines of Scottish newspapers. It is public property. But I have my version, the full version, with her and my father, flanked by her parents, John and Pauline. Pat is smiling shyly and is wearing a stiff-looking white dress with a crossed white decoration in her hair. In her hand, a small bunch of white flowers. Fragile, beautiful, and so young. I think of all the micro decisions that must have led to the night she was taken from me. And I wish that somehow I could reach back and save her from her fate to make a change. I have had, so far, an enjoyable and interesting life. But I sometimes wonder if the impossible could be achieved. In what world would I be living and who would I be? He was saying to me the other day, people will just continue to tell the story the way that they want to tell it. In two years, we'll pick up a newspaper and nothing will have changed. And the police officers who reinvestigated it, who say that this whole thing needs readdressed and, you know, there was a conspiracy at the heart of it, they say the same thing. I don't know if you've seen that, you know, the story keeps popping up and there's a Spanish novelist who's written a novel and she then was doing the rounds of interview rounds claiming that Bible John was alive and well and living in Bilbao. It's just, you know, nonsense. Yes. Well, I think firstly to the point that one in four who were at the Barrowlands would have had their period. Well, yes. And I doubt very much that this was somebody looking for someone who was menstruating. It's much more the, more the fact that the menstruation was the problem when it was found out that they were menstruating. And I have seen that in cases before where, and we know in this case where sanitary pads were removed, tampons were removed, but not all the victims were raped. And that is a mischaracterization of what happened. And actually just one other thing was that it was written in the police report that they went out dancing on their period as if that was some kind of shame or crime or something that shouldn't be done. And I, I thought that was particularly repugnant in the way that the women were characterised. 
Absolutely. And what was interesting to me was that Jemima had on two big pairs of pants. Remember when you were younger and you used to wear those kind of PE pants? I just kind of envisaged them like that, but I don't I don't think they were. Those were not even removed. So I don't even know if her killer knew that she was on her period or not, but she was already conscious of going out with her period and feeling an element of shame, worrying about leaking and putting on two pairs of pants to go out dancing. The fact that they did go dancing with their periods is, is, is shameful. I mean, it's just astonishing to, to just look back and think that that's what the attitude was. But to see it now, that people still talk about it like, well, they were out with their periods, it's ridiculous. Well, I think that what you've described actually shows that she was not someone who was sexually promiscuous. She was actually guarding against any form of sexual contact, even in the way that her clothes were. So that fights against the whole image of what the police have created about who Jemima was. And I think that that's important, you know, certainly in the way that you characterise the case and actually you correcting the narrative. That's why your contribution is so important in your dulcet tones, which was just so easy to listen to you telling the story. I mean, the the production was fantastic, I have to say. The music, the tone, you know, with Alex sharing his memories and the guitar playing, just everything about it was for me. And I listen to a lot of podcasts and always have. I mean, I started Real Crime Profile seven years ago. We were one of the first crime-related podcasts where we wanted to raise awareness. We wanted to centre victims' voices so that they weren't footnotes in their own stories, which is what was always happening. And crime analysts came later but everything about the way that you've gone about telling the stories of honouring the victims ensures that actually now we have a much better reference for ongoing stories. And so any journalist telling the story without listening to your contribution and not doing their job, quite frankly, and not listening to the families and not understanding who the victims were, and actually everything about this Bible John construct is just that. It's a construct and it's a caricature and a spectre, as you called him. I mean, the guy in the taxi with Helen and Jean talked about football too. So why wasn't he football, John? Regular, ordinary football, John, right? The point is that the journalist who named him as what happens in lots of cases knew that this was something that would catch on. But it's actually far from who the person really was. And if we believe it's one person, or is it multiple people? Because the other aspect of the case is how many other women were killed within Glasgow. Let's take Glasgow and then do the macro and the micro, and then you can start to zero in. There were no doubt other women who were raped, harmed and killed within the same time period. So which cases were looked at. And that was a sort of thing that my unit used to do at New Scotland Yard, the sexual offences section. We had the remit of rape, murders and abductions, ensuring that cases were linked. But that, we started the unit in 1996. You know, in terms of the the time, it was post Peter Sutcliffe to ensure that serial perpetrators did not go unlinked in terms of their crimes. But at this time in Scotland, they weren't doing this type of analysis and certainly not understanding of serial killer analysis and research that we know now and that we've studied and that we understand. But all of my research and analysis says that whoever this was, if it were one person, and that's one hypothesis, that they would be just a regular bloke who hated women. 
And you would find him within the domestic violence pool of perpetrators, which is why for police, why I do a lot of police training is to ensure that they make these links so that these monikers don't take over because most of the time they are really just an obstruction and a distraction. That if you're looking for someone who's quoting the Bible and that's, say, one of your parameters, you're not going to find this guy. And he may well have just said one or two things, but then that becomes the hook of which he's characterised by. And therein lies a massive problem. You've got so many myths about this case. I, I counted seven of them at least, which is the myth of the victims, who they were, that was created. And as you mentioned, being sidebars or footnotes, but no real detail about who they were. The myth of the serial killer. Well, not a, a lot was known about serial killers back in the day. And that's a lot of the work my unit was doing as well, of analysing who these individuals were who chose to kill, primarily women, sometimes children. But the myth of motive, you know, what was motivating, let's say if this was one perpetrator, what's the motivation? To me, it's about power and control, misogyny, hatred of women. And we're only really just understanding that now. And I'm doing a lot of the work to make sure people understand why femicides, why men choose to kill women. But the myth also about the investigation in the questioning of if the senior investigating officer missed such basic things like interviewing a suspect at the police station rather than just having casual conversations with someone like um, George Puttock, what else was missed? You know, and that's a really important question in a case like this. You, you can't just take it for granted that everything that should have been done was done in the right way and that journals and logs and decision policies were, make, were written up, which leads into the myth of the SIO, the senior investigating officer. And you uncovered this myth around the senior investigating officer. He became a legend and therefore he was unchallenged, unquestioned. And that for me is a major problem in police circles, that when someone maybe solves one case, they then become this legend and no one challenges them and there's no accountability. And the other two myths, the myth about him being one serial killer that is Bible John, the name that's attached, which is, in my opinion, completely wrong. And the moniker that's attached to that, completely wrong. The image of who he was, completely wrong which is so dangerous. In the case of Peter Sutcliffe, he was called the Yorkshire R-word. And because of that, people thought, and the investigators thought, he was some big, crazed, scary individual, so that when they had Peter Sutcliffe in front of them 14 times, they it thought couldn't possibly it be couldn't him. possibly be him. And they missed him time and time again because of that moniker. Mm-hmm. And you would imagine that that could potentially be the same thing here. And I'm not going to go into too much detail of this because it sort of gives a wee bit too much away. But there was a prime suspect who was picked up by this senior investigating officer who I do think had a messiah complex. And he was not brought in to be seen by the key witness that I talked about earlier. Her name was Jean and she was Helen's sister in the taxi. And, you know, there was a great many failings that you could look at, like door-to-door -door inquiries where this man got off a bus, weren't followed up. And, you know, there are kind of a number of allegations made by the police officers who I spoke to, young me spoke to in 96, who spoke to me after a lot of, a lot of very, very hard work to get them to come on the record 
to go back and criticise that original inquiry. But those myths that you just talked about, some of them were right at the heart of that. Yes, and I think with the investigation, you know, too often people won't talk about what was done or what may have gone wrong. And the loyalty and allegiance within policing, within the institution, is a problem, even with cold cases. Because if you don't do the basics well, that's when it all goes wrong. And down the line, people just assume the basics were done. But what if that myth or that misstep or that judgment kicked in and it meant that the most basic thing wasn't done and everyone's working on the assumption that it was? And that's often where things go horribly wrong. And when I was trained in policing, my boss always said, you know, it starts badly and it ends badly. So the first time you've got to get it right. And oftentimes with these sorts of investigations, the judgments and all of that creeps in right from early on. And if you haven't got a leader ensuring that there's an open mind and that you look at all potential hypotheses before it becomes a theory, then unfortunately the theory kicks in very early on and that's what everybody works to. And I do just get the sense, you've spoken to some of the detectives who did the, the sort of the cold case review that those judgments were so pervasive. And I don't know how many women were working on the investigation, but even women who are within the police service can have internalised misogyny too, because it's all around you and you don't want to stand out and keep challenging things. So and back in the day, we're talking about 60s and 70s, it, it was pervasive. Well, we're also talking about me as a young journalist who probably had internalised misogyny. I mean, I was going to work with big shoulder pads on and swearing all the time to try and be just as hard as all the men that I was working with. Didn't see the misogyny in what the black and white notes right in front of me. Didn't see the fact that these women needed more room and their story told. So that was almost 27 years after the women were, were killed and then 27 years on now. As you say, it was a massive problem and we look at the news and it still is. Yes. <laughs> Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Yes, thank you for referencing that, because I think in our current culture, we have to really understand how women have been treated and have been failed. And Right now, particularly with the Metropolitan Police Service, where I used to work at New Scotland Yard and part of my remit was identifying dangerous men outside of the organisation. But I always said that they must look within the organisation too because of who the job attracts. And if you have people who are motivated by power and control, they're going to want the badge and in America the gun and have that power over people. And we've had Wayne Cousins and Sarah Everard in, in London, Sarah, who was abducted, raped and murdered by a serving police officer. And David Carrick recently, um, 85 assaults he's admitted to, probably far more than that, 49 rapes over 17 years. But Audrey, even with David Carrick, he had nine allegations against him across his career. Two of them were at the time he was being vetted and they were domestic violence allegations. So 
it's tip of the iceberg, really. I was seeing it when I was in the police service and how women are treated within the ranks as well as outside the ranks where judgment kicks in with victims. And we know we have very low domestic violence conviction rates, rape conviction rates, stalking conviction rates, sexual violence across the board conviction rates are very low. And you have to understand where it starts and where it ends. And if you have officers who are committing violence and abuse and they are part of that culture, they're not going to really put their heart and soul into finding somebody external to the organisation who's harming women. They're just not going to see it as a priority. And that's been going on for for so long. And yes, it's referenced right now. And there's a lot of questions to be asked about police and their accountability, and quite rightly, too, of what they're doing to ensure in their rank and file they don't have perpetrators and what they're doing to prioritise male violence against women being the problem and ensuring that they are part of the solution and not further harming women by their inaction. With this case in particular, with Patricia and Jemima and Helen, we can't even say the basics were done at the start of the investigation, the basics weren't done well. So that doesn't give you confidence anyway down the line. And I think that's probably what the cold case team understood and what they shared with you. That's what that officer was saying to me just in the last couple of days, that the basics were never done. It's an absolute scandal that, you know, so many mistakes were made. And so, like, he, he can only speak to Helen she was singularly failed, but we can look back at Patricia and we know that they didn't get very far very quickly in terms of the golden hour and and all of that. And um, they just moved on to something else. Her investigation was closed down really quickly, but um, there are things to say about that in the sense of, you know, I looked at the pictures of the police officers uh, coming along the lane to where Helen's body was found, which which was outside a parking, an individual parking garage. They're treading along. I know things that were completely different then in terms of evidence and DNA and science and all of this. But what I do know is that young officers were brought up, told to go up and look at the body of this naked woman lying in a lane. And to me, when I look at that picture, it's just the absolute epitome of all of this and, you know, how... It began with her being inspected as a specimen or something to learn from by these young officers. And then very quickly, the whole thing was closed down because they failed to to be able to investigate it properly. Okay, so I'm jumping in here to wrap the first part of our conversation. What did you make of it? What stood out to you? Now, as I said in the introduction, this was recorded before Baroness Louise Casey's alarming report into the Metropolitan Police Service. And you probably now get a sense of just how bad things were and still are. You know, we can't just say, well, this is historical. And we mustn't turn a blind eye by saying, well, that was then and this is now. The culture and those in it make a profound difference as to whether victims are treated sensitively and whether effort is actually put into investigating a case in order to solve it. If officers believe the women to be unworthy in inverted commas, then just as the senior investigating officer said, the boys wouldn't put much effort in. The boys being the detectives. That boys club culture. You see how women are constantly judged. 
And yet each of these women, Patricia, Jemima and Helen, deserved so much better. Their families deserve so much better. Not the retelling and rehashing of inaccurate and judgmental information that serves no one other than the killer or killers. And you'll have to listen to part two of this fascinating conversation to find out exactly where I land. Okay, until next time, be curious, ask questions, and always trust your instincts. Here's my final two cents before the episode wraps. If you like what I do, please take two minutes to leave a five-star review wherever you listen to Crime Analyst or on the website www.crime-analyst.com. It really helps others find me and also helps with the ratings. Crime Analyst is written, produced and hosted by me, Laura Richards. Sound engineering by Jason Sheasley at Abridged Audio. Cover art and graphics by Chris Rowbottom at Syndicate and music by Kilrood. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.